In the well-known biography of Martin Luther, here I stand. This is what's described as his ascent upstairs in order to gain righteousness and a holy standing with God. He was climbing Pilate's stairs in hands and knees, repeating a paternoster for each one and kissing each step for good measure in the hope of delivering a soul from purgatory. Luther regretted that his own father and mother were not yet dead so that he might confer on them some signal of favor. Failing that he had resolved to release Grandpa Hine, the stairs were climbed, the paternosters were repeated, the steps were kissed. At the top, Luther raised himself and exclaimed, Who knows whether it is so? Who knows whether this had any meaningful significance? Luther often took drastic measures in attempts at making himself more pure and sanctified. He even rolled around in snow on occasion to, on one occasion, to try and purify himself. Martin Luther, the German monk, he wanted to walk righteously. He didn't know how to. He thought the best place he could do that would maybe go to Rome, the, the city, the holiest city around, and maybe he could climb some stairs and earn favor with God. Those who knew him in the monastery looked, upon, looked up on him and they thought, here's a guy who walks righteously. Here's a guy who is godly. And no matter how many people affirmed him in his walk with God, he inwardly was full of angst until he realized that he was not trusting in Christ, but he was trusting in his own strength. And so he was able to write the words that we sang in our opening hymn. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Luther wanted to follow Jesus. Martin Luther wanted to honor Jesus, but all his following and honoring were misguided prior to becoming a Christian. And they actually served to honor himself because prior to his conversion, it was all done in his own strength. He was pursuing Christ in his own strength. He needed to be renewed and he could not do the renewing himself. He needed the old man to die, but the old man couldn't be killed by him. He needed a man appointed by God. He needed a righteous man. And that's when he discovered Jesus. In our passage today, we see that it wasn't Martin Luther that had this idea of grace alone, faith alone, that the gospel is a gift from God. It wasn't John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, any of the reformers. It wasn't an idea created in the 1500s. But this is an idea, a doctrine in the very pages of Scripture. In our text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, we see that our sanctification... Our sanctification comes from knowing Christ. To sin less 
is to know Christ and his gospel more. To be like Christ, to know Christ and the message that Christ proclaimed. You see, most of us understand the the prerogative or the, the idea of the glory of God alone, rooted in scriptures alone, that we're saved and in legal standing by Christ alone. But I think many of us, after conversion, don't know what to do with faith alone and grace alone. Are those just the pathways, the initiation into Christianity? Or do they still have an active role in our faith? To continue in the faith, you must do so by faith alone. It's not faith and some works. It's faith alone. In Christ alone. Christ is the one who strengthens you by his grace. He is the one who carries you along. So Christian, what about you? Have you become... Frustrated or complacent in your own Christian walk? Would you characterize the last year or two of your life as growing in godliness? You see, the Bible has helped. The Bible aims at helping you to do that. And the foundation of that growth is not an isolated and disconnected commands, but an exhortation stemming from spiritual realities. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians. Our text is found on page 978 of your pew Bible, if you would like to follow along with me as I read. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 20, through 24. Verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray one more time. Lord, work through the preaching of your word. Magnify Jesus Christ. Convince us from your word that we are sanctified, that we grow in godliness. Most fundamentally by knowing Christ and the gospel of Christ. Work in our hearts, we pray, O Jesus. In your name, amen. Our sermon today has two points. If you are following along, if you're taking notes, uh, point number one is found in verses 17 to 19, and that is who you were. Who you were. 
And then verses 20 to 24, who you are. Who you were. 17 to 19, 20 to 24, who you are. Look with me at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The Apostle Paul here is using an earnest exhortation. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. You see, to get to his main point, he really could have just said what he is about to say in the next clause. But he uses this solemn tone because its significance cannot be overstated. So, dear Christian, let me in an attempt to persuade you that this is a solemn tone by the Apostle Paul, by the hand of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. He wants us all to listen up. It's in the same way that Jesus sometimes will just shout, listen, when he's preaching. You see, Paul doesn't get into specific imperatives of Christian living until verse 25 of chapter 4. So the goal for the Christian church, as he's already stated in chapter 4, is to be founded on the cornerstone of Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, to receive the gospel of Christ and the teachings of the apostles and prophets through evangelists, and to be continued to be built up and equipped by shepherd teachers. And then, as the members are built up together, they are to speak the truth with one another in love. And they are to continue to do this as they are being built up by the Holy Spirit himself. That's the goal of the church. That's what Paul is trying to teach us, One Old Road Baptist Church. And he has already explained that. And now he is, in a sense, bridging into a little bit more how-tos. But the how-tos only make sense if you understand chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. He will get into the specifics of parenting and marriage, of how to relate to authority, of church relationships. But first, before he jumps into commandments, you must know something about yourself. You must know who you were and then who you are. That's how serious he is about the process of sanctification. Paul knows the human heart. He knows the law. He knows the temptation of man. He says, just give me a list of things to do so I can get on with it. But he doesn't do that yet. He's explaining beautiful spiritual realities. How we've been purchased by the blood of a lamb. How we've been predestined, adopted in Christ. By the plan of the Father from before the foundations of the earth. How we have the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. You see, he wants us to grasp these realities before we jump in. All right, just tell me how to be a better dad. If you want to be a better dad, spend a lot of time in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And this is, the sense, this is in a sense, the bridge between these imperatives and all of the spiritualities. And I think, I said it a few weeks ago, I think there might only be one Imperative in chapters 1, 2, and 3, if there is one at all. 
See, sanctification is vital for the Christian. As we are new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works, we want to be more like Christ. It's our new DNA in a sense. You see, sanctification, our our statement of faith, uh, article number 10 of our sanctification says this, that we believe sanctification is a process by which we are made partakers of God's holiness according to his purpose. Sanctification is a progressive work. It begins in regeneration and continues in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and by God's appointed means. These means include the word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, prayer, and the oversight and fellowship of the visible church. Those are the means by which we are made more holy, made to be more like Christ. So Paul gives this solemn vow, this solemn exhortation, and then he gets to verses 18 and 19, where we're instructed on the mind and the heart of those without Christ, or where you were before you became a Christian. Notice the progression here. Notice how this unfolds in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. So before knowing Christ, the mind is darkened and in a sense unable to think. It's as if the mind is, is stuck in a, a dark hotel room where there's no light. There's no way to think about the Lord because the mind is shut off to the light. The light can't get through. I don't know about you, whenever I stay in a hotel, I've stayed in enough hotels to know that despite there being a blackout curtain and then a curtain on top of that, Even if there's the slightest crack, even if the light can get through the slightest space, it will get through and it will wake me up. If there's a VCR, what? What is a VCR? If there's a TV with lights on it and a DVD player or whatever, and the lights are are, are on, I take a shirt and I put it over the light. If there's a crack in the door in the hallway, I like to put a towel there. I want it completely dark. Because I don't want to see the light. Now, that's a positive example. What Paul is saying here, it's like that darkened hotel room. Our minds are. Where we can't understand the light of Christ. And the fact, the way the Bible sets us up is, is, is if we are trying actively to deny seeing the light. Like a hotel room where we are making every opportunity, taking duct tape if we could, to keep out the light. That's the way our minds are apart from Christ. So with this darkened mind, one of the effects of that is mentioned as verse 18 continues, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them. So you have this this darkened mind. And now you are cut off from, from, from God. You are as aliens to him. And you are living in ignorance because of your lack of knowledge. Okay, remember, this is who you were. And then he says, due to their hardness of heart. So there's some kind of interplay. 
In Scripture, you can't completely disconnect the mind from the heart. But they are different. A darkened mind leads to a hard heart. This is what the apostle is saying. Darkened mind leaves them separated from God, cut off, and therefore they're ignorant of the things of God and have a hard heart. And have become callous to God and therefore callous to godliness, righteousness, and holy living. But it doesn't stop there. In the darkness, in the alienation, in the ignorance, and in the callousness, humans don't remain neutral to the things of God. So it's not merely they're just callous. So if you've ever worked with your hands a lot, maybe you did construction, or, or in the summer, as you were, if when you were a kid, you were barefoot, your feet become what? Calloused. It's a good thing. You can't feel the rocks like you could if you had, you know, your, your fresh May feet. Come August, your feet are tough and calloused. And so Paul's using this word in the sense that we're so callous to the things of God that we don't understand what the things are God and we don't remain neutral, but he says that we are actually giving ourselves up to really evil deeds. He says sensuality here in verse 19. Maybe your Bible says licentiousness. This is just abandoning yourself to unrestrained practices. Especially sexual practices. Just giving up yourselves to sensuality. If you are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, this is time and time again something that the nation of Israel did. Is when... They'd have a time of renewal, a time of thanksgiving. They'd forget the word of God, or maybe it was kept in the storehouse or the treasury. And in their forgetting of God, their deeds and their morality got worse and worse and worse. All the way to the point where they had something called male cult prostitution. The very people of God, the light of the world, practicing male cult prostitution or or calling upon necromancers. That is the spirits of of the dead to interact with the dead. Or even the very people of God would go along with the evil practice of child sacrifice. This was supposed to be the light of the world. And they became greedy to practice every kind of impurity. A darkened mind and a hard heart are not neutral. It hurts you, hurts those around you, hurts the nation you live in. And God in his goodness will judge those who practice such things and those who have no righteous man standing in their place. You see, there is no innocence. Friends, this is who you were. Even if you became a Christian at a young age, this is who you were. You likely weren't doing some of the evil things I just mentioned, but unrestrained, if God's grace, his piercing light didn't enter your life, where would you be right now? Apart from the mercy of Christ, where would you be right now? So Christian, just think. Think about where you were before Christ. 
Think about some of those things that you did. And just keep teasing that out. A little bit of pornography. A little bit of more vile pornography. Meeting with someone. Meeting with more people. Giving up yourself over and over again. Looking for that satisfaction. Because you have this hardness of heart. This kind of evil that begins in the heart is what eventually creates child trafficking and sex trafficking. And the organ mafia, which is so common in Turkey and China. We are totally depraved, aren't we? And if you haven't gone to that level, that's just by the common grace of God. Perhaps the nation you lived in, the parents you lived in, that, that raised you. Every kind of evil and every kind of impurity. And friends, don't just think that this every kind of evil is, is out there. It's just, you know, in the land of, of John Patton, who was a missionary among cannibals. Or maybe it's just in certain parts of India or China or the Middle East or Russia. I remember talking to a friend one day. We, we carpooled on the way to seminary and we were uh, listening to, to some of the things that would occur in the last days. I didn't have an understanding that the last days are right now at the time. And I told my friend, Andy, I said, well, it just doesn't seem that bad right now. Like things seem fine. When's it going to get worse? And he just looked at me. I forget the stat he said, but Mark, do you know how many thousands of babies are being aborted today? And I didn't. I didn't think about that because in my mind, I'm cut off from so many of those things. I'm cut off from what goes on on, on a lot in the eastern part of Kansas City. Cut off from almost a murder a day, it seems like. Friends, we live in evil times. And any place we see this evil unrestrained, it's only by the common grace of God. There is no innocent person. We are born sinners. I wonder how many of you parents, as you're teaching your kids things at the ages of one and two, did you ever have to teach them how to throw a temper tantrum? No? Did you say, you know, cow goes moo, pig goes oink, chicken cluck cluck. And this child is how you throw a temper tantrum. No, they just do it out of the evil bound up in their heart. And out of the evil bound up in our heart, we respond with impatience and anger, don't we? See, no one has to teach us that. We are depraved people. You see, the bad fruit from a darkened intellect, a darkened understanding and mind is a hard heart. And the only way to correct this is to understand that you are blind and that the light trying to get through is the light of Christ and responding by faith and repentance, just as our brother Rhett described earlier. What good news this is for us Christians. We'll get to that more in a second. But for us church, what should this do? Paul is wanting you to remember who you were in order to 
to help you grow in your sanctification. In some sense, church, it should humble us. How many of us can go around and say, in light of this news, what's written here in verses 17 and 19, look at me and how good I am, and look how well I am to keep God's law. My friends, even if you became a believer at a young age, and you never remember a rebellious time of your life, that's again only the grace of God in your life. None of us at the foot of the cross can look around at others and say, how come you can't be as good as me? A church should also warn us. This should warn us not to go back to these futile ways when we are darkened in our understanding. Satan might whisper in your ear and say, remember how much fun you had then? Wouldn't it be good to repay evil for evil? Wouldn't it be good to give them to this lust? Friends, do not listen to his lies. When it comes to the way we think about Politics and Christianity in the public sphere. Uh, there's much that can be said here, but just remember the failings of the moral majority of the, the late 80s and early 90s. How in many ways it conflated true Christian doctrine with, with morality. They're not altogether bad. There were many good things that happened from there, many good policies that were kept in place. But to conflate Christianity with mere moral living is not right. And Warren Road, consider what this means for missions. May the truths in 17 and 19 ignite us to consider the nations who are living in darkness without any hope, without any gospel light, apart from someone going and spreading the gospel to them. Church, may this build compassion in us. When we think about our budget, may we be thinking about the Great Commission. How are we getting the gospel to places that have no access to the gospel, that are just given over to the futility of their minds, who live in darkness and ignorance? And unless someone goes and preaches the gospel, unless they hear the gospel, unless they receive the gospel by faith, they will perish without the gospel in just judgment. Church, remember who you were before you knew Christ. But secondly, who you are. Know who you are in Christ. Here is the contrast that Paul is building towards. Remember who you were. You used to live like this. And now who you are. Verse 20. That is not the way you learn Christ. So just pause there. He's talking to Christians. So any of us think we're above this, remember the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, to Christians. So none of us is beyond going back into our old ways, are we? We know that by experience. We know that by knowing other people. We know that just by the evil things that can linger and build up in our hearts. So here's the contrast. What is the truth that they have learned? You have learned Christ. That is, we have discovered Christ or come to know Christ. Our minds, which were like a darkened hotel room with no penetrating light, have been enlightened. The curtains in the hotel room have been pulled back. And once that happens, the unstoppable light of the gospel shines into our minds. 
just like someone waking up in the middle of, or at, at 8 a.m., thinking it's dark outside in that hotel room, pulling back the curtains and all that light pouring through. Friends, the light has always been there. It's just that our minds have been closed off until we are in Christ. In, in, in a sense, it's always been high noon. It's just that we didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. In verse 21, he tells them, reminds them, reminds us how we discovered Christ. Look at verse 21. We heard about him and then we were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That's how the light comes into the mind. In order to have the mind enlightened, in order to not be aliens from the life of God, but children of God. In order to have a soft heart, someone tells us the gospel. We hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we believe it. Christ is preached. Christ is heard. And Christ is believed. That is the truth that is in Jesus. This is one of the few times in the epistles that we see the word Jesus without Christ or Lord. I don't want to make too much of it, but look at verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is just, again, going back to that foundation. That Jesus is the promised, prophesied descendant of King David. And Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. Friends, what a sturdy foundation we have. This is no fairy tale. It is no fable. This is truth built upon Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Bethlehem. Friends, it is not any other propped up truth by any other religious authority, any political authority, any educational authority that gives you the knowledge of Christ. No other knowledge is able to enlighten your heart. Not the Pope, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not a Brahmin priest, not the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, not any former or current U.S. president, judge, or legislature, and not any so-called church that does not adhere to the unadulterated gospel of Christ as revealed in his word. This is how we know of Christ as it's revealed in his word. And as Paul is getting at, this is the way that we are continuing to grow in our sanctification. And to know Christ is not merely to understand his doctrines, but to attain the knowledge of the Son of God. As Charles Hodge said, Commenting on this passage, God in our nature, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and life. That is what it means to learn Christ here. It's to know him in an intimate way, as a friend, as a brother, as a Savior. And as you know Christ more deeply... I don't think we're set up to now read the next three things as imperatives. More like indicatives or just 
truths on their own. As I said earlier, this is the portion of Ephesians that is the bridge to more commands. And these commands are rooted in this pattern of knowing your old man is gone, that you are being renewed day by day by the Spirit, and that you are a new person and a new creation. I think, even though if you have the ESV, you're likely to read these as the first really imperatives in the book of Ephesians. I think we're supposed to read these just as indicative facts for a few reasons. One is because you can do it grammatically. You can do that grammatically. Secondly, other places in scripture take the same approach when it's talking about your old man versus your new man. They're explaining realities. So think of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. You've died to sin. And since Paul is saying in Romans 6, why in the world would you go in the practice of the old man if the old man's dead and you're in your new man created in Christ Jesus, being baptized in him? So grammatically you can do it. Secondly, in other places of scripture, we see this pattern when it's talking about our old selves and our new selves. Thirdly, and most obviously, if you give me the command to renew myself, I have no idea how to do that. In the same way that if you give a dead squirrel the command to wake up and live, that dead squirrel is going to do nothing. See, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And what Paul is getting at here is that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. To know Christ more deeply. That is how you are going to grow in your sanctification. So, he's going down here. He's saying, know these things about you. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That is, your old selves in Adam. This is, he is speaking about our old existence. We have put off our old selves. So when it says put off your old selves, remind you, Christian, that you are no longer a child of Adam. You are now a child of Christ. He says to be renewed, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, Romans 12 gets out this this idea that we are being no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds, the work of the spirit. Verse 24, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the new man. The new existence in, is what Christ has inaugurated when he established his church. This is a renewal of creation. It's no longer Adam, no longer Israel. Christ came and all those in Christ are now the new people of God. You see, the church is the new creation of God. The church is the new family of God. The church, the people of God, is a new temple of God. And the church is the new kingdom of God. And the church is now the bride of Christ. And the apostle wants you to know these very basic facts about you. These spiritual realities. So that you might grow in godliness and sanctification. See, Christian, you cannot separate your justification 
from your sanctification. They aren't the same thing, but they are indivisible. You cannot divide them. So what if you looking through your life the last couple years and you can't see much change? What if you're grown frustrated in your sanctification? Or maybe some of you are just stagnant, like a puddle of water that just sits there. You feel like you've experienced no change. Well, let me just ask you some questions. When you're tempted towards sin, do you exhort yourself with the gospel that you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus? Is that kind of your knee-jerk reaction? Or do you just kind of yell at yourself inwardly, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That's evil, that's evil, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. Now, friends, that might help initially. Just say no to that sin. But if you just stay there, you're either going to become puffed up in your own ability to manage your sin or you're going to be crushed because you're going to keep failing and breaking your own rules. That's not plan A when it comes to fighting sin. Plan A is given here. Remind yourself as what has happened to you. The old man is gone. The feudal ways are gone. The darkened mind is gone. The hardened heart is gone. You no longer are callous to the things of God. But you are alive. The very spirit of God is living inside of you. And he gives you the power, the strength, new desires to follow him and his ways. When you're downcast, you gently remind yourself of the love of Christ for you on the cross. Or do you, in a sense, just stay in your despair, never reminding yourself how much God loves you as displayed on the cross of Christ? When you're feeling kind of meh about life and things, do the roots of your faith grow down deeper and deeper, remembering that you are legally justified because you've been objectively ransomed by the blood of Christ? Friends, this is the way to fight sin. This is the way not to go back to our former ways, is to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Martin Luther said about sanctification, the purpose of his working is our sanctification, which he accomplishes by applying, so to speak, the redemptive activity of Christ in our life. He also says that the spirit dwells in believers, not merely as to his gifts, but as to his substance. Christian, you're a new creation. Christian, take heart. You're the light of the world. Christian, take heart. You are the bride of Christ, adorned in righteous garments. You are free from the chains of sin. Don't go back to Egypt. You're free. The chains are gone. You are the very affection of Christ Jesus. You are valued by Christ. You're unworthy of such love. And yet he looks at you and says, I love you. And now you have 
worth in Christ Jesus. Know this Christ and know you are in him. That is the sanctification that comes by faith, knowing these truths. So friend, are you tired as a spouse? Are you tired as a wife or as a husband in your ability to love your spouse? Tell these truths to yourself, just how forgiven you are in Christ. And let that overflow into forgiving your spouse. That's what he does. He does that in verse, uh, in the later part of chapter four. Forgive others, be tenderhearted toward others, just as you are forgiven in Christ. Are you tired as a parent, just being frustrated? Are you remembering that God is your father and he has been so patient with you? He's long suffering with you. He disciplines you for your good. Out of that, are you disciplining your children? Are you long suffering with your kid? As a friend, are you enduring with patience your other friends? Do you build up walls with people because you just don't know how to deal with certain people? Or do you dive into relationships knowing that you can, you can honor that person, love that person in the power of Christ by his spirit, just as Christ has loved you. You see, this is where our sanctification must start in, the, in these objective spiritual realities. This is Pauline theology, which is the theology of God And of what Christ wants us to do as we grow into a spiritual house unto the Lord. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You were baptized in Christ, you've put on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus, Romans 13, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. One wrote, be convinced of this for your own good and for the building up of this body. That it is knowing doctrine, not in a cold kind of separated way, but knowing doctrine and enjoying it and loving it and communing with Christ. This is how you grow in your sanctification and how you are built up into Christ. As we conclude here, let me leave you with one more quote by Martin Luther, the reformer on sanctification. He says, in this shorter catechism that I believe that I cannot of my own understanding and strength believe in or come to Jesus Christ, my Lord, but that the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel and illuminated me with his gifts and sanctified me in the faith. That's what Paul taught. That's what Martin Luther taught. And friends, may we continue to teach that to one another in this church. Spend a few moments in silence before I close us down in prayer and we sing one last song. Heavenly Father, remind us now even that our old selves 
have been crucified with Christ. That the former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. Lord, remind us of how bitter it tastes to go back to our old ways. Even if it's alluring at first. Oh Lord, would you renew us in the spirit of our minds? Remind us, oh God, how we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That now we are created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness, in true holiness. And Lord, we pray that if anyone is in this room and they don't know you, oh Lord, would you convict their hearts that they cannot become righteous apart from your only begotten son. Oh Lord, draw someone to yourself, even today we pray. All this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.